Pages of Pim Better Podcast. Greetings, Voyagers. Welcome to the Voyages of Tim Vetter Podcast. This is episode number 190. My episode today is with Jeff Slatnick. Jeff owns a music store in Manhattan's Village on West 4th Street. It's called The Music Inn. It's a neighborhood institution. Really, it's a New York institution. When you go in, there are musical instruments from all around the world. I mean, they're hanging from the ceiling, from the walls. Some of them I've never seen before. He explains a couple of them in this episode, and they're so cool. But there's also records. Over the years, they've done an open mic. They've done uh, music lessons. Jeff can make instruments. It's an incredible place. I mean, everyone outside knows who Jeff is. As soon as he walks outside, everybody's saying hi. And so I knew that I wanted to to talk about this. A lot of the really cool cultural institutions in New York City are going away. I mean, they had already been, but now because of what's happened with businesses because of the coronavirus, there's a lot of people who can't afford their businesses anymore. So I wanted to, to spotlight the music in because it's a place that I want people to you know, patronize and to go and to shop because I want it to still be here. But I never, I never realized what an incredible life Jeff has had until I sat down with him and we recorded this. This is one of the craziest lives that that I've had on this podcast. So this is super cool for me, and I'm really excited to, to have everybody hear it. We recorded in the basement of the Music Inn, and it's a, it's a busy place. People are coming and going, and a couple employees came down, and uh, a guy who was shopping came down. I left all of that in here. Most of the time, you don't even know, uh, but there are some technical edits that take place especially when I'm recording remotely and like a call drops or someone gets another call or something happens. Crazy kids in my building start screaming. And the wizard, Brian, he seamlessly cuts this stuff. But I left this stuff in there because there's some some banter back and forth and I don't know. I kind of want you to feel like you're sitting there with us. There might be some buzzing and stuff like that in the background. It's a music shop. You know, there's stuff plugged in. There's some feedback and stuff, but... Uh, the sound is good, and I just wanted to preface that to say once or twice we uh, stopped to chat with someone, and I left that all in. If you want to check out the comic that Jeff is working on that he talked about, you can reach out to me. It's the voyages of Tim Vetter at gmail.com or through social media. I'll either send it directly to you or I'll give you Jeff's email address that you can get you know, connected with him to check that out. It's pretty cool. All right. In the show notes for this episode, you'll also find a link to the Music Insight, and you'll find a link to my Patreon account. That is a subscription-based service where you can give monthly and get some cool kickbacks. All right, folks. Enjoy this conversation with Jeff Slatnick. Oh, we can start rolling, yeah. All right, so I was saying what, what happened is my wife works at Bronx Lebanon Hospital, and uh, the hospital turned into a COVID hospital. Everybody was there. But she was working 12 hours a day, seven days a week, and commuting from downtown, going all the way up there. And uh, she got the COVID. She couldn't smell. She couldn't taste anything. And... Uh, she still went to work. They didn't have tests. And they said, you have no fever. Just keep coming. So she was there Whoa. all the time. So I got it. And uh, I stayed home and uh, worked on this comic book series I've been working on. And uh, uh, songs that are in it. Uh, the newest comic book. that It's a 10-part it's a series on the plague that happened in ancient Egypt. That's fitting. <laughs> and, uh, so I am there, and I have the same kind of shop, a music store that sells uh, instruments, and I am, am experimenting, as I am now, designing and making new instruments. I'm doing it there, making harps, 
And Moses knows my half-brother, who happens to be Aaron. And Aaron is going to be his harp teacher. So it's a whole story about how the plague came. Now, oddly enough, I think I started it in November or something like that of last year and had no idea we were going to have the COVID, had no insight at all in that matter. Uh, do you do the illustrations for that, too? No, I don't do the illustrations. It's an interesting story. Is that you, T? What's up, man? This is Chuck Nitty. Uh, he and I uh, met playing basketball 20-some years going, man? ago. Tim. And he's been working with me here at the shop ever since. Ah, cool, cool. And um, anyway, back to where I think I left off is the COVID and everything. So this, uh, this guy, he is from Trinidad. And uh, uh, maybe 12 years ago, he brought a drawing home to my house. He was visiting my son, who is the same age. Uh, they're both like 31, 32 now. And they came home. And there was a drawing that had me standing on rubble and me saying to my son, hey, Kool-Aid, you better clean this mess up before your mom gets home. And it's just a drawing of a building totally rubbleized and me standing on top of it like King Kong. So I thought it was a clever drawing. I bought it, and the guy kept bringing me drawings. After that, I said, listen, how about I tell you a story? You illustrate it. So we did several different comic books, and I actually paid to be have them printed out by professional comic book printing places and sold them and gave them away and uh, eventually got bored with that and felt like, you know, I'm just going to do this plague thing and send them out to people free. Just email them to anybody who wants oh, to cool. see them. So I have probably sent out a few hundred of them or maybe more, I don't know, and told people to share them, so I don't know how many have seen them. But so far done is six of the ten, and they are all laid out in my mind, They all and they're getting bigger and bigger. The first story, I think, was eight pages. Now this story is like 68 pages, so they're getting long and deeper. But there, I, something I guess I felt compelled to have to do anyway, maybe as a little child. And it, it, it is in cahoots with my whole life, really, how I got created and exist in the first place. Can people still check that out if they're listening now? Oh, yeah, now? yeah. I, you know, I, I don't have them posted. You have to, like, get me to personally send them to you, and then anybody can post them if they want. I don't even know how I would post it or where. Okay, I might... Uh Offline, I might work with you there. That's yeah, cool. Yeah, that's fine. That's no problem. You know, uh, um, let's see who you are. All right. Well, that's actually a good segue into how I kind of wanted to start this. So I was mentioning before we started recording that I've done this all around the world. You know, started as just a, I'm bored and want to try to do something creative. And it's turned into I get to talk to some incredible people all around the world. That's a great song title, by the way. I've done this all around the world. Don't steal that. I won't steal it. Okay. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I've, listen, I've been in basements, music venues. I've recorded on the side of the highway. But this space feels really special, and this is really cool for me to be in, and it feels really original. It feels a bit like it's it's got, like, you know, the ghost of of memories, right? So um, I'm really appreciative that uh, we get to do this. This is really cool. This place is a hook of uh, global uh, entry port to America. Mm -hmm. Greenwich Village versus uh, an Italian uh, neighborhood when uh, I was uh, here first. But uh, at one point, it was a big Indian hangout. There was a river on West 4th Street. The Indians from all the boroughs would come and uh, have sort of an open mic kind of thing. It was a cultural area for all the tribes. Uh, these Manhattan Indians had a good center location on the whole continent. And they had come originally from Asia. So just to have gotten to Manhattan Island and settled is a great accomplishment. And certainly a holy place was sort of established. Yeah. The Dutch came and they, uh, you know, they gave the bees in the and said, these are amazing. This is like a technological advancement we have never been able to accomplish these 
class Bs you brought us. But as it turned out, they didn't quite understand that that meant uh, you're selling something, whereas it was more like, oh, you're welcome, thank you. I will be glad to share my uh, bounty with you. Yeah. So uh, perhaps down on West 4th Street here, there was some great uh, sad massacre or something, and now uh, America now has a pin, like a needle or a pin stuck in it right on the map, right there in the middle of Greenwich Village. So many people who have come and uh, needed to change the whole venue of American culture, like Bob Dylan or Woody Guthrie, they came and they came to Greenwich Village, you know. So somehow I feel lucky to have become inclusive in this kind of coterie just because I was attracted right away as like, Oh, I guess that's where I belong. And uh, oh, yeah, my my life happened before. I'm just running through it backwards now, you know. So it seemed like it was the right place for me. And and circumstances always played out. So I ended up owning this place, which is definitely has a unique history since 1958. Were you born here in New York? I was born in Newark, New Jersey. Okay, not far. And went to. Uh, in the Weequake section, another Indian tribe area of Newark was Weequake High School I went to, and Allen Ginsberg went to that high school. Oh, wow. Philip Roth, a famous uh-huh. writer. Uh, and uh, I went there, too. How early in your life did music play a factor? Like, can you remember your first experiences hearing music? Yeah, you know, my first challenge with music actually was like the intangibility and inability to hold on to music like an object. Ah. Like it just came and it passed. And that struck me and frustrated me as a really small little kid. Uh, I loved, uh, you know, pop music and songs and stuff, but my mother was a musician. And her family and her side, she came from London, England. Her father owned a theater in London and uh, wrote plays and directed them and played the violin in the orchestra that was the theater as it ran. So her two brothers were concert violinists and her family was really directed around that life. But she came here by herself when she was 14. Uh, In 1929, she was 16. She married the first guy who had a job, who uh, put the make on her and had a good solid job. She probably played him just right and (laughs) married, you know, one few months, yeah. Do you remember the first instrument you played or learned how to play? Yeah, the first instrument I played because her brothers and father were all violinists when I was seven as appropriately as the formality uh, dictated I started playing the violin but it was unfortunate because my uncle who was now 90 something years old was on his deathbed so he came to America from England and my mother was in taking care of him and she thought what a brilliant idea he teach me to play violin. I'm at the right age. Now, I didn't like hanging out with a 90-year-old guy, especially at seven. It was just like we weren't at the same rhythm. And uh, the violin didn't work for me, I, though I did play it some. What uh, did work for you? Well, then came the piano. Ah. And the piano was good. I understood basically how it worked out. But the piano was a machine, and the violin was like you touch the strings. It's like making love to women if it's in your heart to want to touch and feel. And there's an intimacy that's lost in the piano. But at uh, 10 years old, I decided I wanted a guitar. Nice. And uh, I had to fight for it. <laughs> and my mother couldn't, couldn't see exactly what was in mind. And I got a guitar, and I immediately was Woody Guthrie or something like that. And uh, I just wanted to sing songs from the Dust Bowls, uh, the Grapes of Wrath stories called Tom Joad is a song. And uh, I just ate it up. She was baffled. She was an immigrant. Uh, she didn't know American culture, and I was just eating it up. Uh, my father also was an immigrant from Belarus and oh. Argentina. He went from Belarus to Argentina to live and then to America. So interesting stories, actually. They're quite interesting. Do you remember, you know, outside of 
your family who played music the first time you went and like paid to see a live band, like what concert or show that was? Oh, paid to see. Hmm. Maybe very young, I paid to see uh, Woody, uh, Pete Seeger came to Newark or something like that. And I was maybe 11 and I just wanted to see. So I got to go see it. But actually, uh, I, I wasn't big on that kind of stuff. Uh, the story of my life is actually very interesting if you want to hear that. Oh, definitely. That's why I'm here. Right. So I had, my father was not a musician at all. But I don't think my father was my father. This is what happened in uh, as 1929, my mother got married. In 1945 or 1944, uh, she was into doing her own theater. She was entertaining the troops. She was starring in it, writing skits and plays and getting other people to do it. And uh, she would get a band that would play and she'd sing. And she had grown up doing this in a theater as a child. In 1917, her mother died as she was an air raid warden. The Germans dropped bombs from Zeppelins and she got killed. So her mother then just grew up living in the theater with her father until she menstruated. And her father said, I got to get her out of here. And he sent her to America to live with her sister, but she got married right away. She was fine with my father. She had two children and everything was fine. But in 1944, something happened when she was doing her show for the soldiers. And uh, this guy was probably a musician and he went off and he probably got killed. And they decided, my father said, I'll stay with you, but you have to have an abortion. I don't want to raise somebody else's child. They went to some place in Union City, New Jersey, and had an abortion. She went back, and she didn't feel good. She kept bleeding, and her sister came over, and they went to the hospital. There was still a heartbeat inside besides what? hers. And they said, well, this is crazy. They probably really fucked up the fetus really bad. Maybe you should get a legal abortion now go to court go see a doctor the hospital advisor she goes to the court the court says no bitch you had an abortion you're gonna have to pay the consequences anyway so i was born and and therefore it created a whole lot of strange things and it was still in the middle of world war ii there was a lot of anxiety tension and this became the motivating facts that sort of made me who I was and how I went with life. But I also lived my life in a very careless way in a young age. I did what I wanted to do, mm. where I wanted to go. And she sort of let me do that. And my father really stayed out of it. He just didn't know what to say about anything because I wasn't his. He didn't want to interfere with my own development. But music really was a thing. But it's funny because I didn't want to be a musician when I got to high school. I said, like, I should be an artist, maybe a painter or something like that. So I started painting, and I won the art award in high school. And lo and behold, I got into Cooper Union. It's an art ah, school in yeah. the village, and it was free at the time. Uh, so in 1963, I set out to Cooper Union. And uh, after a year, my father wasn't able to support me at all during college. So I got odd jobs while I was in school. And after a year of that, I was sick and tired of jobs and working and shit like that. So I quit right in the second year, the first couple of weeks. But I got a job right away working for a very famous artist named Ellsworth Kelly. People would know if they look him up who he is. He already had pieces in the Metropolitan Museum of Art and in main galleries everywhere, so he was a big success. And uh, so I got into the art world until 1966. These guys called me from San Francisco and said, you gotta see what's happening here musically. We'll pay your plane fare, we'll give you a place to live. You played lead guitar in our rock and roll band. We remember you from way back. Now I had played Lots of kinds of music. My most interesting music was uh, the blues and black guys. There was a guy who played in the village in the subway station named Gary Davis, Reverend Gary Davis. He was a blind guy, and uh, 
very few records that I ever buy in my life that I heard somebody and said, I got to get that record and figure out what he's doing. He's blind in the subway and he's putting out records? Putting out records. Wow. He had records out. And uh, a, somebody who became well-known for writing tablature on on finger-picking music, a guy named Stephen Grossman, who also went to Cooper Union as an architecture student, would lead him from Harlem all the way down to the station in Greenwich Village from the A train, and he would sit there and play, and I saw him play. I went out and bought a record right away, and this was what I wanted to do. Uh, Bobby Darren, uh, I played with, uh, was a guy who became famous as a rocker, uh, hip, kind of cool guy. And I had gotten into the uh, stand-up bass because uh, I got a job playing in a very high-powered, successful bluegrass band. I wasn't interested in bluegrass, but I liked folk music, so what the hell, I played the bass, and I could slap it and walk it and do the things that you do. So I got involved with Bobby Darren. So I already was playing a lot of music around and playing with people. Playing with people in the village, uh, but I was mostly accompanying people, never this main act. But I always felt like it was the main act. They just hadn't felt my, you know, found my, my niche. So, hey, you found something good, eh? <laughs> well, forty-five uh, adds four up, dollars. and four dollars. Give me the money. Give me six. <laughs> yeah, ladies and gentlemen, I am now changing a ten into six dollars. It's all right if it's if it sounds. I could go with uh, six <laughs> singles or a five and a one. Yes. Maybe I could do a, a two dollar bill. Uh, What's this record? Uh, yeah, this is called "I'm Over 18 in Paris. I don't know it. No, you don't know it in Paris. <laughs> The Empires? Dean Parrish. Dean Parrish? Oh, Dean Parrish, yes. I perished the thought. Thanks, Edwin. I was going to say I could cut this, but I don't know. It feels kind of authentic to just leave it in. Yeah, I'm trying to go through all the singles and turn it. <laughs> all right, yeah, here we go. Thank you, Jeff. Thank You're you. welcome. You're welcome. See you soon. Cool. Everybody yelled at me for selling you that record. What? The record I sold you, the uh, Frank Sinatra picture disc, I got yelled at from everybody that I sold this for too little. No, no, no. Yes, no. yeah, I got a lot of abuse. I, I, uh, you, want to know, you want to hear something? Yeah. I sell this record at $15. You, you're That's not that much. <laughs> no, it doesn't matter. It's hard to have employees. He doesn't work here. No. <laughs> He's a customer. Oh, that's perfect. No, what happened is he uh, he saw a picture disc that was probably worth $125. A Frank Sinatra yeah. picture disc, rare, brand new, sealed. And yet it was old. It was probably from uh, 1950s or 60s. And... Uh, he got, I, I just was sick and tired of his just endless hassle and, and harrowing me. About he broke it. you down. So I just said, look, you take it for $20 and get out of here. So he did. So he walked out and he was like, can you believe it? He told everybody. <laughs> oh, no. He watches at the window and then he leaves. They all came in and said, what the fuck is the matter with you? Excuse the words. You know, what are you doing? I said, oh, this is a guy. I couldn't take him anymore. It broke me down. All right. So we got to where you were in this bluegrass group. Yeah, so then I got involved with Bobby Darren through that. He produced an album. We played at Carnegie Hall. And uh, I, I was just uh, doing fine playing music in the village. And then uh, I went out to San Francisco. They were kind of wild what was going on there. They picked me up at the airport. They gave me uh, Osley LSD. They uh, said, we're going to see the Grateful Dead. I never know who the hell is the Grateful Dead. And they wanted to put love beads on me. I said, oh, no, no, no. I'm from New York. We don't have <laughs> yeah. beads in New York. I had no concept of what the hippie was. Anyway, so we went right there from the airport. We saw the Grateful Dead. Uh, I met a woman who was like 10 years older than me. And just in case I had to have a place to get out of these guys' grip. 
And uh, I started playing with them. They were okay. I wasn't that impressed with them. And then uh, I met some other guys that were better. And uh, I said, what the hell? I'll go move in with, with the older woman and play with the other guys. This was going fine until I decided I wanted to buy a sitar. I saw a sitar in a window of an Indian import store. I bought the sitar. This is my son, Kule, going by. What's up, man? How are you? Uh, so I bought the sitar, and uh, I was walking back to Marjorie's, and a big Cadillac limo pulls off on Fillmore Street, pulls up. And out steps Muhammad Ali. He has just evaded the draft and become a black Muslim and is seeking conscientious objection for being religiously against the war. Uh, he gets out of the car and all these ladies come out with their dashiki African dresses. Their hair is magnificent and they are all holding bouquets of beautiful flowers. And Muhammad... He pervades the whole block, and it's all black faces except yours truly, just staying there, and he looks at me, and he goes, Hey, you. Yeah, you hippie. Yeah, you hippie. Get your ass over here. Get over here, hippie. And he looks at all the arranged people, and he says, You know, I'm a hippie, too. And then I came across, and he put his arm around me, this giant arm, and he looked me in the eye so intensely, and he says, I'm a hippie, too. This is unreal. This is true. Wow. So I now realized I couldn't live with Marjorie anymore. This is no good. I have just been touched by Muhammad. So I decide I got to do something, and I go over to the hip job co-op, and there is a sign of Vatya Ackerman, who turns out to be the secretary of the Oakland-San Francisco Black Panthers. Avatia has two little black girls that were sired by a Jewish white guy. And they, she thinks immediately, this is the guy. Free room and board, just take care of the two little girls while she is at work being a beautician in the Fillmore, which is like the Harlem of San Francisco at that time. Uh -huh. So... I get the job. This is great. Mohammed touched me. I am in the, the bosom of the Black Panthers, and uh, they have riots in Newark and riots in L.A., and the Panthers all come to Avacha's very big apartment, and they lock me in the closet. What? True story. They lock me in the closet because they are afraid that the police might be watching. They know who oh. lives there. They know I live there. I would be the most easiest person to break down. No temptation. Just stay in the fucking closet. Uh, so I, okay, all right, I'll stay in the closet. I get your point. So I'm in the closet. The whole thing ends. I leave and... I had been, when I was with Marjorie, at a Zen monastery called Tazahara. For, not that I was into Zen, but Marjorie was, the girl I was with. And she, uh, I had met the Reverend D.T. Suzuki, who wrote a lot of the first writings about Zen and, uh, in America. And uh, it was kind of funny, because I wasn't into Zen. I couldn't sit Zazen. So after the first day, I just found a dulcimer. I went down by the river and started to play. And suddenly I felt I was being watched. I turned around and it was the master himself. And he looked at me and he said, you don't need Sitzazen. You already. And he left. So I made friends with his number one disciple for some reason the weekend I was there. And now that I have been locked in the closet and am freed, who do I run into the street? But his number one disciple, there he is. And he tells me that he's organizing this rock concert for the Zen thing. And then he is going back to Topeka, Kansas, where his father has just died, and he has inherited a Cadillac dealership. He is now a wealthy man. He's going back to take care of his mother. But would I play at the rock concert? So we do the rock concert, and he says, you want to come to Topeka? And I said, well, I don't have any money. I just got to get out of this house, these Black Panthers. You know, it's crazy. <laughs> And he says, uh, 
let's hitchhike. I have a bus ticket, but let's hitchhike, and I'm okay. So we hitchhike. This sounds like a Richard Browdigan novel or something like that. It's just a true story. I know. I believe you. So we do pretty good until we get to Dinosaur, Colorado. Now, I left out one little detail. There was a girlfriend I used to have back in New York, and I ran into her right there in San Francisco, and I was like, wow, how you doing? And she says, what's going on? I said, we're hitchhiking to uh, Topeka, Kansas, and then I'm going to go to New York again. And she said, can I come? And I said, yeah. And I guess she was still infatuated me, with me enough to want to go. So we set out the three. Well, we got hit, picked up by a guy who just had a pickup kind of truck. He put us in the back. He put Merrill in the seat next to himself. And he tried to talk him, her into doing it with him in a motel somewhere. And she wouldn't do it. So he dropped us off in Dinosaur, Colorado. There's a town called Dinosaur? There's a town called Dinosaur, Colorado. And we start hitchhiking. And... The local policeman drives right up and he says, listen, guys, you know, it's against the law to hitchhike in Colorado, but I don't really care. But the state trooper lives in this town. And trust me, don't don't be here when he comes. What time does he come? Oh, about four (laughs) o'clock. It's like 1130 in the morning. We'll be out of here at four o'clock. You know, the longest we waited was 20 minutes to get a ride. Four o'clock, we still have no ride, and the state trooper comes. Uh-oh. Now, this guy should be held up as a symbol of something in this story. He gets out of the car, and he is like Gary Cooper after he has been in Auschwitz for uh, some time. Totally emaciated, elderly man, and he has two six-guns strapped to him, one on each side, facing backwards so he could pull him out like... He was a desperado. <laughs> yeah. And he pulls right up, says to us, listen, we can't hitchhike in Colorado. And so Richard, the guy who I was with, quickly thinks of, I have a bus ticket all the way to Topeka. Is there a bus station in the town? Well, you could go to the gas station and they put up a flag and the bus to Denver comes through. So we're like, okay, Richard, you go to the gas station. We go to the gas station. The cop pulls to the gas station before we get there, and then he comes out of the place, and he's standing there smirking, you know, just tapping his cowboy boots. We go in, and they won't take the ticket. Uh. Whatever reason, they just won't take the ticket. So we can't even buy a bus ticket. So we uh, go back out, and the guy says, uh, you know, so I say, how far is it to Utah? So he says, just start walking. No way. So we walk all the way to Utah, and we start hitchhiking across the different pavement. One has, like, concrete pavement. One has a tar pavement, and there is a sign, welcome to Colorado, or going out, welcome to Utah. We're on the Utah side, and a car comes by, a Corvette, with a little two-way radio antenna. And it goes by, and it goes bend. And then there it is, going by again the other way. Uh, 20 minutes later, it goes by the other way. And then all of a sudden, he pulls up right into Colorado, maybe 20 feet into Colorado. We pick up our shit. We start running. I still have a sitar under my arm. We get to the car, and the siren goes off, and out comes State Trooper Jack. And he pulls out his two guns, and he puts them right up against my chest. And I said to him, ha, 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 we're still in Utah. You have no jurisdiction. If you were to do anything, you're violating God's law. And uh, the guy says, I don't want to see your face in Utah. So I'm like, "Is okay. How far is it for us to walk to Nevada? Maybe you could, I was being a real yeah, smarty yeah. ass right in the face of all this death. And uh, he just said, start walking. So we started walking. The sun went down, and it's all desert. It's all desert. And I said, let's just go in the desert and just get lost. We go in the desert, and we're like, oh, maybe a quarter of a mile into the desert. And all of a sudden, we see all these cars, five cars pull up, 
searchlights and shotguns hanging out their window, starting to make circles in the desert, like as if it was a maneuver. And we got up and ran our asses, stumbled over weeds, got up again and ran until we were way, maybe a mile and a half, two miles we ran into the desert. Finally, they disappeared, they gave up, they went back, they figured they lost us. Sunrise, we came back out to the highway, and the first vehicle comes by is a Coca-Cola truck. And I just stand there right in the middle of the road. You're going to run me over, run me over, motherfucker, but I'm not letting you by. He stops. He's way up in the cab there, you know, and he points at the sign, says, no riders. And I tell him the whole story of what happened. What I have just told you, I tell it to him in maybe 31 seconds. (laughs) (laughs) And... uh, he becomes sympathetic. He comes down and he gives us each a bottle of Coca-Cola and he drives away. And we realize we don't even have the means to open the Coca-Cola oh, lids. You know, we can hit him on a rock. But God sends his miracles. And sure enough, this 85-year-old guy comes riding down the road in an old bread truck that he has now converted into his canvas. He goes to national parks all over the West And he gets a postcard from the visitor lounge and he sits down and he paints a picture of the postcard on a surface of his truck. Anywhere he can find there's a surface that he hasn't painted yet, he paints a new one on it from another postcard. Picks this up and I tell him again the story, now it's going through it in 20 seconds. And he just points at the Bible and he tells me what to read. He says, you know, Luke 23, 17, boy. And I'm like, okay, so I look it up, I get it, and I, like, read the Bible all the way to Denver. We get to Denver, and this guy called his mother, sent us a bus ticket, and we all go to Topeka. Merrill decides to call her mother, and she gets an airplane ticket, flies back to New York. I don't have anybody to call, so I just take the sitar and spend two weeks playing poker with... uh, Richard's mother, who is intentionally losing. So the $5 I had suddenly was like 50 bucks, you know, that I won playing poker with Richard's mom. And then I set out to hitchhike. It gets better. (laughs) The next stop I get off is St. Louis, Missouri from Topeka, Kansas. And, uh, As soon as I get off the highway, I ask the first person I see, where are there people that look like me? Now, I've just come from San Francisco in 1967. I definitely look like a hippie. Holding a sitar. Holding a sitar. (laughs) They tell me to go to the Gaslight District. I get to the Gaslight District, and I meet a guy. He's like, wow, that's a sitar. Unbelievable. Chuck's got to see this. Chuck who? Chuck Barry, he owns this house. Get out of here, man. He takes me to Chuck Barry's house. Chuck, this guy here, he's just come from San Francisco. This is a sitar. A sitar? I never touched one. I never seen one. Chuck invites me to stay, and he says, you can stay the night before you go on. He's got this big mansion. And all of a sudden, on the ground floor of the mansion is like a nightclub. And I don't remember if it was called Chuck's or something like that. And the police raid the place. They arrest everybody. And I see what's going on right away, having a quick instinct, went all the way up to the highest point in the house, which was an attic. And in the attic, there was an air conditioner vent. It had central air conditioning. I climbed into the vent. I took a quarter out of my pocket. I opened up the vent. I climbed in, pulled it up, stayed in there with my sitar still. (laughs) In the morning, I got out of the vent. I went down the stairs. I went back into the kitchen, opened the window, climbed over the garden to another estate, out the driveway, and uh, was off. Hitchhiked to New York. Got to New York pretty quick. I get to New York City, and I need a place to stay. I knew this one guy who I had his phone number, and uh, I call up and find out he's working at this new discotheque just opening called the Electric Circus, and he is in the crew. They're rebuilding it and all this stuff going on. Uh, you okay? Oh, yeah. So 
He says, uh, you can stay with me, uh, but uh, stop over at the circus. You know, I'm going to show you where I'm working. I go over there and I got my sitar. I got smell of San Francisco and the road. And these suits come out. And they're the guys who own the electric circus. And the guy sees the sitar and sees me and he says, can you play that? And I say, yeah. I sit down right on the ground and start playing. He says, you want a job? I said, why not? He says, you're hired. That night I was opening for Sly and the Family Stone. They bought me a whole new suit. They <laughs> took me uptown and they bought me a new sitar. They put a pickup on it on 48th Street. Some guy installed a pickup on the outside of the sitar. And I had this job. That was fun. It was fine. But the funny story is, is... Maybe two months later, I go out at three in the morning. I go down Third Avenue. There was a little luncheonette between A Street and 10th Street on Third Avenue. And uh, who uh, is sitting alone in the luncheonette? Chuck Berry. (laughs) Nobody else in the place. He's sitting in there. Uh, He would probably figure at three in the morning I could go out in one of these places, you know, and nobody would be even up. So he's in there. I go in, and he is like, hippie. And it was funny. At that moment, he had called me hippie, just like Muhammad Ali. And he said, hippie, we wonder what happened to you. And I told him the whole story. Yeah, the air conditioner. Yeah. And he just thought it was so funny and resolved. That story doesn't end, though. The funny thing is, six months ago, a guy comes in, and he's just looking around. It's a cool store. He's doing that. And he says, you know, I'm the executor of the Chuck Berry estate. Maybe somebody had mentioned Chuck Berry records and he said, I am actually the guy who's executing the estate. I said, I gotta tell you a story. So I tell him the story and he says, you know, 1967 they did bust the mansion. They raided the bar and they busted everybody and Chuck got, you know, called up. And uh, he said, yeah, and uh, yep, he did see you in New York because he told me the story about the hippie back in 1967. So I said to him at that point, you know, I was doing so much drugs in those days. I really don't know if the story is true or not. (laughs) (laughs) So I said, now that you said it, I'm the happiest guy in the world. I realized, you know, I have Donald Trump myself into a world. It wasn't the acid. (laughs) Oh, wow. So it was just oh, that's funny, so funny. Totally funny cards events. So I heard you wanted to ask me something. <laughs> well, I don't I don't know what I can ask after that, but maybe I'll, I'll try. Where so where in your personal timeline then did you get you got classically trained in oh, yeah. Indian mu- in Hindustani or after I was back in New York and playing Sitar Electric Circus. I heard from a guy that Ali Akbar Khan, very famous Sarod player. Now, I was making good money at the Electric Circus. I went and bought a Sarod for myself, and I had instruments, and I had a place to live. And uh, I didn't know where I could buy sitar strings on a regular basis. And a guy who saw me play, after he said, like, you know, I'm into Indian music too, he said, this store here where he worked sold sitar strings. So he brought me over to the music inn and I bought sitar strings and the guy who owned the store said to me, you know how to play the sitar? And I said, yeah. I was acting like a real asshole, like I really knew how to play, but I didn't. Uh, So he said, would you like to work on Saturday afternoons to Christmas? Because we got a lot of customers now interested in sitars. It's all the rage, George Harrison, blah, blah, blah. So I was like, now I had met George Harrison in San Francisco. Oddly enough, with the sitar, I left this out. Before I ever left to New York, I'm walking down Hay Street with the sitar. And I see an army of a thousand people coming up the street. And who is the leader of the band? George Harrison is walking up the street. Now, I thought to myself, this is not something I want to get involved in. I'm going to cross the street and kind of get around the crowd as they come up. And George sees me with the sitar under my arm, and he goes like, Hey, mate, you know, what kind of sitar you got? 
And I'm like, what kind of sitar? I got, Jesus, that's George Harrison. What am I going to do? He goes, yeah, come on, mate, show me. So I came over and I sat down on the curb with him. And is it before said, or after their sort of hippie, their trippy transformation? Well, he is now studied with Ravi yeah, Shankar okay. himself, and he has a very good sitar. He has a heron roy. I know much more now than then. I knew nothing, and he told me, like, the kind I have is this. It's made in Calcutta. This is the wow. style of Ravi Shankar. And I was like, oh, well, this is, uh, yeah, I know how to tune it, you know, and I played a couple of lines. He said, that's good, you know, and that's and I went my way, you know, so it was nice to meet him that way. But I came back to New York, and uh, in New York, I got the job on Saturdays. Well, as it turned out, Ali Akbar Khan, Ravi Shankar's brother-in-law and the, the son of Ravi Shankar's teacher and all the great stars at that time were all students of this great sainted musician. So uh, I heard he was staying at a hotel, the Cambridge House Hotel in Times Square. Now, he has passed away, so I, I don't want to befudge his memory, but I'll try to be careful in how I tell this story. Okay. I called up the hotel lobby, and they put me up to his room, and I told his mistress at the time that I had a sarod, but I couldn't make any sense out of the stringing on it. Didn't make any sense. And she said, you should come up and have dinner. Because here they are in New York because he's making these records for a record company. But they don't know anybody in New York and uh, nobody knows them. They're from India. So they were so glad to have me. I told them I got off work at 3 in the morning. And they said, oh, that's when we eat dinner. We're still eating on Indian time, you know. <sighs> so I went up. And he was magnificent. He took all the strings off the instrument. He put new strings on. He said, come back tomorrow and I'll have you play it. I went back the next night again late and he gave me a lesson. And then he said, now I've done something for you. You got to do something for me. And this is the tacky part. He says, I want to see Times Square. In 1960s, Times Square was a really pretty racy place. This is 1968 mm. now. And uh, so I took him everywhere. And uh, it's cute to imagine he had a great time. And he gave me a lesson for two weeks and said, I am starting a college of Indian music in California. You should come. So as it turned out, I ended up doing two TV commercials, made a lot of money, and set out to his college. And I felt like, oh, this is going to be great. And I even had an appearance in one playing, and so I had even more money from it so I could spend at least a year studying without having to worry. I could rent a place to live and study and take it seriously. So I did it first, and then I, I uh, ran out of money, and I was so into it that he hired me to work for him and uh, I got a small stipend and rented a room and just studied for seven years like a, a, a hermit, really. Don't know what happened in rock world. All I do is eight hours a day of practicing uh, these music that he would give me. Uh, there was a group of people. It was a small coterie of maybe five students in his advanced class. And then he had constantly people coming because he was famous. And Ravi Shankar would come and teach classes there and so on. So uh, I enjoyed my stay there. It was about seven years. And then uh, my life completely changed. I had to go off and figure out a way to make money. One day... Oh, all the advanced students chipped in, because I didn't have a job yet. They all chipped in and bought me a guitar, and I got a job teaching in Marin County in the school systems, going from one school to another, teaching kids how to play the oh, guitar. Oh, that's cool. It was very easy for me, because yeah. I'd always played the guitar, so I, I did it, although it wasn't my main interest, until one day a guy comes up to me, and he had heard me play Indian music, and so he said... Just let me do this. He tied a rope between two trees and he put bells on his ankle, Indian ankle bells around his ankles. And he said, play. And I started playing and he started dancing and he danced up the rope and he got in the middle of the rope 
And he did the most amazing things I had ever seen, you know, like twists with rhythm, and he could play along with me. He was totally into the music. And then he said, come with me. And he took me to this place called the Renaissance Fair, and uh, we tied up a rope between two trees. I sat down, and I had a guy who played the tabla drummer come with us. And we sat down and played, and we immediately made a fortune and had a crowd of thousands of people standing around blocking the whole causeway until this lady comes up and she says, you, you can't do this. And I said, can't do what? This is the best act you have in the place. She said, I know, but you, we have to put you on a stage. So she put, put us on a stage. And I realized it wasn't like, you know, the improvisation, the spontaneity on a stage. It was already too much formalization. Mm. So I figured I had to write a show. So I wrote a show called The Bridge of the Requitur. Uh, it's a, based on a Zoroastrian, a Persian religion, a myth uh, that is uh, when the world comes to an end, the spirit of humanity comes to this molten fire, which is like a mirror. It's so molten. And there is nothing but a one hair from the goddess of righteousness that stretches over this. And if one is true to his purpose and cause, one will be able to cross over. But one also looks down and sees in this thing the mirror that reflects who they are and what they believe to be real and the reality that they are depending on to give them fortitude. So this was a perfect theme for the story. So I wrote a whole score and got six different Indian musicians, got a actor to narrate it, wrote a poetic script, and told the whole story. So it was great. It was very successful. We got work out of it. We played a party in L.A. where Fellini and Elizabeth Taylor were the guests of honor, and it was just millionaires in a big mansion. And... We did the act, not the whole story, but the act. And uh, uh, after we did the story, though, the most honored thing was after I finished, they came off the stage and a guy said, you're wanted at the Turkish coffee house. If I was you, I'd go. So I go over there and who is there but Led Zeppelin and Joni Mitchell. Oh, and they shit. say, hey, mate, we saw your show. It was fabulous. We loved it. You want to do some coke with us? And I was like, what am I going to say? No. <laughs> oh so God, I sat down crazy. and we did coke. And the only thing I remember is that uh, the manager of Led Zeppelin never shut up. He was like truly what they say with coke and while well, he just couldn't stop. And I was like, I, I don't even know who these guys are, but I know who Joni Mitchell is. And I'm very impressed, you know, because she's a woman, not because she's Joni Mitchell and... She happens to be a special woman, too, for a guy who likes music. So I had a good time, didn't say much. But I noticed she looked at me a lot like I was totally made up. I was in a costume. My face was painted with, like, mantras on it. So I looked like I was from ancient times. And uh, I don't know what she thought, but she was definitely fascinated. But I didn't say a word. I think I was maybe deep down petrified. Who yeah. Knows? And uh, so uh, I came to New York again after that, thinking this would be a great place to bring the act back to New York. It was, everybody was just blown away. It had such a natural thing to it. There was no illusion. It was real. This guy really like floated in the air. It Are these was, recorded? Uh, I'm sure people took yeah. films of it, but this is so many years ago. This yeah. is 1976. Ah. So uh, after that, I came to New York, and uh, I got a job playing in a lot of Indian restaurants. And after a while, uh, I was making good money, really good money, and I was feeling pretty good. And I came by this store to see if it was still here. And sure enough, it was. And the guy said to me, I remember you from 10 years ago. You want, you're the sitar player. Yeah, you want to... Uh, Work here on Saturdays till Christmas, because it must have been around October or something, like maybe around this time that I came in. So I said, okay. So I started working Saturdays, and it was a very busy store then. It was 
packed with people all the time. Records were the only way you got music. All the latest records were here. Artists were here buying their records. Uh, actors, people who just liked hanging around the village came and got their records. So it was very busy and it was a cool job. Uh, after a, finally a few years, maybe four or five years of playing in Indian restaurants and working here part-time, I got tired of playing in Indian restaurants. It's still like playing in a restaurant, you know, it's different. Yeah. So I started working here more times and people moved on and time moves on and then eventually I ended up owning the store. It's just <laughs> a path that required, uh, you know, conscientious devotion to another person. The guy who originally owned this store had no children and he got old and he had lost his wife uh, years before and uh, somebody had to, you know, usher him into the next life and take care of him as he got old. He wasn't healthy in the end. And uh, by serving that service, you know, he gave me the store. So Wow. It, it looks like you've kept it largely un, unchanged. No, I changed it a lot. Ah, I did okay. so many things. You know, some of the things I did, I don't even want to say just in case they weren't <laughs> legal. Okay. <laughs> but, uh, no, I, I really grew a lot, you know. But I, I would tell people it's not so much my personality. There is a global consciousness uh, yeah. in the village here. And people, are, uh, the instruments I have from all over the world are here because people from all over the world are here in New York and they all come down to the village and they say, oh, I am from Persia, but I have a Santor, but I don't want any more. Are you interested? And I say, yeah, I'm interested. Why wouldn't I be? So I There's some pieces up there that are so beautiful. I, I'm a novice, so I don't know, but there's something with like a really long neck. It almost looks like it comes out to like a dragon head at the bottom. Oh, that's an interesting instrument. It's called the Rudravina. The story is that uh, maybe in the beginning of the Bronze Age, a guy named Rudra, who was a reincarnation of Shiva, he was a god himself, came in a flying, fiery chariot. <laughs> and he, uh, he would play an instrument for his consorts. Now it required metal strings and it required metal frets. So the guitar all owe their lineage back to the Rudravina. But what, what they did was they took a long pole of bamboo and they would melt wax, not the god, but humans after he left, they would melt globs of wax and stick a little piece of bronze in the wax. So they had a fret and they spaced them along the pole and then they would tie a gourd to one end of the pole and a big dried out gourd to the other end of the pole. And they were able to draw string by getting wire so hot. Once they reached it, they could draw the metal and keep pulling it through a hole until it was smaller and smaller. And they had a string. And uh, the Rudravina is really the antecedent of all metal string instruments with frets. Can you play it? Yeah, I could play it. It's a big thing, and you got to sit on the floor. <laughs> yeah. It's a whole process. I'm not going to get it down and play it now. But uh, it, what it does provide is a really growly, deep tone, and the instruments that I make can imitate that Rudravina sound. And uh, I'll play that for you if you want to hear something. That would be beautiful, yeah. I, I mean, there's... Uh there's some things I've recognized there's like African instruments. How are you acquiring all this stuff? Well, after the store being open 62 years, it's just been always a source of people coming. As I said, people come from Africa. They show up mm. and they say, I have this instrument. Is there any place where somebody might be interested in it? And they come here and I, yeah, wow, that's great. Wow. So now that I understand the instrument so much, I understand if something's wrong with it, if yeah. something's right, what it has to be, what its value is. These have come from all these years of being here. The first time I had ever heard of or seen your shop was maybe like seven, eight years ago. Uh, big fan of the tallest man on earth. And oh, he's a fabulous guy. Me, a big fan too. Yeah. So he, I mean, people can go see it on on YouTube. But he did this really cool. He did a Jackson Brown cover where he's just like walking around the shop and like picking up random stuff and like. Well, that was in. not his tune. That was a cover. I don't yeah. know. I just don't know. 
Yeah, but that that was that not upstairs here? Yeah, it was upstairs. Yeah. In those days, there was no downstairs. There oh, had okay. to be, you had to go outside on the street and down the cellar door to come into this room. So I only used it as a place to store cases. Uh, eventually, after the man who had started the store passed away and stuff like that, I actually got a professional architect and came in and put in a stairway in the store. So customers couldn't come down, and then I, instead of this being a dilapidated cellar room, I had it really turned into a nice instrument room. Has anyone ever tried to buy this place from you? A couple of people uh, talked about it, but they don't really understand it at all. They don't understand. It's kind of a, like a body or a lifestyle, you know. You can yeah. events become your body. It, There's a lot of people you get to know, though. It's an interesting place. There, it is a real social center for global uh, consciousness, especially through the music uh, aspect of it. So lots of musicians who became very famous, and uh, that's something I have always avoided, uh, I guess, in my nature for some reason. I think it's the abortion thing and my mother thing and something, but I would rather do something important rather than something, you know, to be an entertainer that's beneath my uh, expectation. It makes me think of something. So people are probably sick of me talking about this, but um, Anthony Bourdain, before he passed, did this. It was like the only endorsement he ever did was for this uh, whiskey company. But instead of just like doing some cheesy commercials or some shit like that, like he did these 15 minute long videos where he would go with a craftsman. So we had like a cobbler uh, and, and a baker, someone who made uh, acoustic guitar, someone who made drums. And there would be like a two-second promotion of the pro of the whiskey, but it was about the craftsmen and sort of that yeah. dying breed of real original people uh, doing a craft that's kind of disappearing. And you know, as more and more New York City becomes Targets and Whole Foods and other you know shrink-wrapped places like that, uh, the more I see a place like this as being like so important to keeping some of like the the authenticity and like sexiness. Yeah, but I'm not into the museumness of it. Mm. I'm really into the giving you the perspective to see the future. That's mm. really its advantage. If you could take advantage of what you can gleam in knowledge and experience from something unique like that, then you're really equipped to do something unique and different that will change the future. Uh, that's where I kind of see how I fit in. Uh, and I, I'm uh, happy with it. I think uh, it will be recorded and known. And uh, Yeah, well, hopefully this becomes part of that. I have knew a little bit about you, but I didn't know that fascinating story, so I'm happy to be able to get this on recording. In a way, it's like the story, the store is like a, a, a brassiere and a girdle, you know? It kind of gives me support, but it's not really the main thrust I've always motivated to want to do something, uh, you know, like heroic, like be like Leonardo or Michelangelo. That's more important uh, ambitions than uh, run around and uh, have a lot of sex with good-looking young girls, which was okay, too. There was a lot of periods of that. I, there are a lot of people I played with, too, along the way. Uh, I, I don't even want to talk about it. That's all. Do you, um, you know, with the changing New York, do do you sort of long for those days at all? Like, you no, know, like, no, 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 nothing like that. So you go with. I the long to be in the present. You know, as I said to you, when I first heard music and I couldn't grasp it, it wasn't tangible enough for me. I was always felt deprived and something left up. Uh, it's the need to be able to actually see the present with the intensity that it clearly see it. So music, you kind of hear it and you can hear everything, but it, it just keeps going then and it's gone. And yet that's the clarity of the present that I want to see mm. all the time. So that when I play, I actually hear what's coming out of the instrument or what's coming out of me on a microscopic level or biological level. How is 
what is the sound in the room? There's so much sound in here. So it's just a matter of having to leave yourself. So this comic book I'm doing, the main character that is me is called M.T. Jeff. So it's like, uh, it's a pun in other ways too. It looks very uh, Egyptian looking when you see it scripted out. But it's like, uh, I seek to be empty to be able to just receive. And then everything is given. And this is really, that's the way to live your life if you're capable of it. But you're not because we're all sentient beings. We're just uh, tagged for the extermination. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I should pin the conversation there. I feel like that's a, a good way to kind of come full circle. That's a good idea, too, because my wife is uh, already home. <laughs> okay, sorry, She's, dude. She's uh, expecting me to come up with some dinner plan. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. This was really incredible uh, for me. It's been my pleasure. This been, it was easy and fun. Thank you. All right, everyone. That is a wrap on episode 190 of the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. Really want to thank Jeff for this. It was so cool to be able to hang out in the Music Inn and to get to talk to him. This podcast has taken me to some incredible places, and this one was really memorable. So thanks, Jeff. Thank you to all of you Voyagers out there for listening, as always. This will be a short wrap-up here, so I'd like to say thank you one final time. And as always, everybody, please take care of each other. Catch you very soon. <laughs>